Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I've got another great Disrupting Japan Select show for you this week. In creating Disrupting Japan, I'm always surprised at how hard it is to predict which shows will do well. When I'm talking with my guests, I'm in the moment and I'm just having a conversation. So sometimes when I sit down to edit that conversation, it's really different from how I remembered it. And even after editing, there seems to be very little relationship between how good I think an episode is and how many times it actually gets downloaded. But rather than trying to reverse engineer what makes one show more popular than another, I find it better to just interview people that I find interesting, to make the best show I possibly can, release it, and hope you like it. But every once in a while, there's a show that I think really deserved more attention than it received. And this is one of those shows. I sat down with Hiro Nagashima back in 2015, and he told the story of how his startup failed. And he didn't tell it in that macho bullshit, fail fast, fail forward kind of way, but, but simply and honestly. And he also shared how Japanese society reacted to that failure. It's a great conversation, and at the end of the show, I'll give you an update both on Hiro himself. And on how Japan's attitude towards failure has changed over the past few years. This is an experimental show, but an important one. You're going to hear a story today that does not have a happy ending. Well, actually, it kind of does, but not in the way you'd expect. Startup culture has a very confused view of failure. We founders are simultaneously told to fail fast, but to never give up. People glibly spout that we should fail fast and fail forward, but actual failure, well, it's not that simple. It's not something that can just be shrugged away. Now, I've been to two well known conferences that claim to promote an acceptance of failure. And at these conferences, a procession of people took the stage and told the audience about their failures. But not really. You see, they told stories of how they bravely turned around a bad situation or how they rebounded even stronger from a temporary setback. One of them even ended his story with him selling his company for $200 million. I only wish I could fail like that. But. The stories were good. The audience enjoyed them. The event was a success, so who am I to criticize? But still, it made me wonder maybe people don't really want to hear about actual failure. Maybe we only really want to hear about successful failures. Everyone loves a happy ending. But you know, that's not what failure is like. I've had successful exits, but I've also bankrupted companies. And you know something? Failure hurts. Failure is lonely. Some people who you thought were close friends stop returning your calls. Failure is where you see both the absolute worst 
and sometimes the absolute best in both yourself and in the people around you. Now, failure's not to be celebrated. Failure's to be accepted, to be studied, but not celebrated. And today I'm honored to sit down with Hiroshi Nagashima and hear a story about a startup gone wrong. Now, as the story unfolds, more experienced listeners will see the yellow flags and then the red flags start to appear. But what I'm most grateful to Hiro for is sharing not simply the strategic and situational reasons that his business went bad, but what it really feels like to have your company fall apart around you. It's a great story with no cliches, no feel-good rationalizations, and absolutely no bullshit. It's a story not of happy endings, but perhaps one of redemption. So let's get right to the interview. All right, I'm sitting here with Hiro Nagashima of Sherbu Kids. Thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me, Tim. All right, I'm delighted. Now, Sherbu Kids is or was the it was an online retailer of high-end fashion for babies and kids and yes. seem to be mostly overseas brands. Yes, that's right. You can probably explain it much better than I can. So what was Sherbu Kids? Yes, well, I mean, Sherbu Kids uh, started out uh, in, in 2012. Uh, actually, the initial concept, he came out of uh, one of the investors, Casey Wall. Right. Um, he wanted to do uh, something with baby and children's clothes. Uh, and I got together with him and to try to think of an actual plan, how to create this company and how the business model would be. You know, he pointed out a very, very interesting uh, aspect of the, the fashion business. There was really no flash sales in Japan. Right. At the time, I mean, there were flash sales for adult clothes, such as, uh, you know, the Gill Group or a Brand for Friends. So this was a company that very much you were building a company around a good business opportunity. Business idea, really. That, that just kind, kind of was just an idea at first. And I really tried to develop this idea. In, in a sense, that makes sense because you yourself are coming from a really strong background in finance. Mm. So you've got an MBA from Wharton. You've worked at Mitsubishi and Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. So I can see why that, that financial angle would be appealing to you. But mm. what made you want to leave a, a solid career in finance and go start a company? Well, actually, um, before starting Shrebu Kids, I actually worked in another startup. That's a company called Lacondo. Was that a rocket internet company? That's exactly ah, right. I know those guys. So, so the, the reason why I got started with that is because of my background in finance, because, uh, and they had contacted uh, you know, my school and through the school, they, were, they contacted me about starting and so they wanted to create a team, and it was very interesting to me. So um, it was a great experience. Uh, the company didn't go as we planned. No, there was a lot of turnover there, as I recall. Yes, there was. And, and, and I was one of the, the ones who turned over, really. But, uh, but it was a great experience. I mean, I was one of the, the founding members, one of the six starting members of the company, and I built the operations for that company. I learned a lot of new things in e-commerce. And after um, I kind of stepped out of Locondo, I really wanted to continue on that path of building companies. Um, you know, starting Sherebu Kids was, you know, it was, it was my company. Were your friends and family supportive of this move to entrepreneurship? Um, they, they, they were. Um, okay. and, and in some ways, they are still. They know what I wanted to do. 
they kind of understand that I'm, I'm sort of an ambitious guy within the family. I'm Japanese, and my parents, of course, are from a Japanese background, but I would say maybe, you know, they're not the typical conservative, like, Japanese family. I mean, they were very supportive of me uh, since I was little. Oh, that's great. I mean, so many of the people, I, so many of the founders I talk to, when they first go out on their own, there's tremendous pressure from inside the family to... Yeah not do that. Yeah, to, to conform to, to maybe societal norms. Especially if they're leaving a really good job, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Sherbu Kids, you had what seemed like a solid business plan, mm. a attractive market opportunity. Yes. Tell me about the, the launch and early traction. We focus, we try to focus on, on, on the children and kids' uh, clothing marketing, flash sales. We approached many of the, the Japanese domestic uh, baby clothes manufacturers, the brands, um, and it turned out that they were very conservative, that they didn't want to just give the products to us to sell on consignment, uh, especially, you know, because, you know, we were very, you know, startup-y, like we, we weren't very well-funded. That didn't attract a lot of the Japanese brands. So what happened was after exhausting our contacts with the, the brand, Japanese brands, we decided to make a, a pivot trying to get foreign brands uh, to sell in Japan, but they were not on consignment. Uh, they were actually purchased. Oh, okay. So you were, you were having inventory. You were exactly. having to maintain inventory. Exactly. But, but the model there is that we wouldn't sell the extremely famous brands in Japan. Mm-hmm. We would sell that, uh, some of the companies that were kind of moderately well-known, but they didn't have distributors in Japan. You were selling foreign brands that didn't have a presence here in Japan yet, right? You weren't uh, selling... They were little known, so they were kind of up-and-coming brands, and this is what we try to focus on. Okay, so brands that might be getting a little bit of traction but are desperate enough for new revenues to take a chance on a startup. Exactly. Sounds like a, a solid approach. Yes. Ultimately, for any retailer, if you, if you have... A customer base, you know, that's always attractive to manufacturers or, or, right, or, right. or brands. So this was really an entry. So you, you started building up a, a customer base with the foreign brands. Yes. After you had this customer base, were the domestic manufacturers more willing to, to work with you? Yes. Uh, you know, when we first initially approached them, we didn't even have a website. But after we launched it with uh, the foreign brands, uh, they actually liked their site. I mean, it was, it was very upscale. It was very different from what the Japanese uh, brands were used to. So we, we, we went back to some of these brands, and they were interested. I mean, they, I would say they definitely had more interest in giving us the clothes, except they said, okay, we will provide these clothes to you, but you will have to buy this at this price. Uh-huh. But they were, it was very low. I mean, it was a good deal. But even at that point, you know, we just didn't have enough funding to put all our money into that into one brand. inventory, yeah, yes. yeah. But it sounds like things are, are, other than the inventory risk, that things are going along well. Your, your sales were increasing at this yes. point. Yes, um, you had you, you were hiring staff. Yes. So when, when did things start to... Unravel, basically. Yeah, well, really? Okay. <laughs> well, even before that, when, when did you start to get the feeling that, that things weren't going well? Uh, when I tried to go get additional funding to grow the business. You know, I attracted some uh, VCs. You know, it's what I realized later on was, you know, they showed a lot of interest. They showed a lot of interest in my background and what the company could be. But retailing is such a uh, risk for VCs, especially when you're doing it on 
not on consignment, but when you're buying risk, uh, when you're buying inventory. So right. that's very risky to them. And I think I got the feeling that with the VCs that I approached, they would rather invest when the company was much bigger. So it almost felt like there wasn't funding for that, that series that I was very interested in. Were, they, were the VCs up front with you? Did they tell you that? Uh, or did they just say, let's keep talking? Uh, one, one VC specifically said that you know, they would rather invest in a later round. Okay. Uh, one VC was, was, uh, wasn't so straight, straightforward. They just said they would have to see much higher projections. You know, I think that's one of the mistakes that I made as well, is that when I actually approached them, maybe I wasn't as optimistic about the figures, and, and they were really looking for that kind of All right. mega-hit uh, investment. So you think you were just, just too conservative? Yes, I think that's, that's definitely one of the mistakes. Probably your finance background working against you. Um, maybe so, maybe so. <laughs> but but I, I think this, that's one of the lessons that, that kind of came out, was maybe I had made too conservative projection, and that didn't really, in turn, convince the VCs that you know this was that this was to... a serious possibility. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, that could make sense, just because they're so used to hearing founders give ridiculous projections. Exactly, they'll cut anything you say in half before thinking. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, so so after you got this feedback from the VCs, mm-hmm. so you realized that the round was not going to close as you expected, when you expected. Mm-hmm. How did you change your business? How did you, how did you take this new information and, and use it? To grow the business ex- exponentially, I needed a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But at that point, you know, the sales were still going up. My idea was that you know, we would do kind of a, a slow ramp up of the business, just kind of hiring people as the sales went up incrementally. Your burn rate must have been very low at this point. Very low, very low. So you were, you were almost a cash flow positive, growing the company. Exactly. I just mean, by, by normal measures, you're doing everything right. Yeah. Basically, I wasn't really paying myself, and I just had one full-time staff. And the rest of the part-timers, I mean, this would be um, marketing, part-time buying, uh, photography of the products, photoshopping. Uh, these people were all part-timers, and many of them are people I, I actually got to know or worked for me at Laconda, the previous company. Uh-huh. From my own experience with part-timers, I've found they're often, uh, let's say, not as committed to the success of the company. Mm. But it sounds like you didn't experience that at all. Uh, actually, with, with some people I did, but most of the part-timers that I brought in were people I already knew and, and I had worked with or had so worked for me. it was a personal me. commitment. There. It was a personal commitment. All right. Uh-huh. So you decided to kind of stay the course, mm-hmm. grow organically, cover yes. your costs. Yes. Sounds like you're certainly on a reasonable path now. Yes. So how did this play out? You know, when we initially started Sherebu Kids, we started importing clothes from overseas. And at that time, at that time, the yen was relatively strong. It was probably 80 yen to the dollar. Oh, yeah. And then it started going bad when... The yen rate what became about 115 or 120 yen to the dollar. Right, it's about 120 now. Now that became you know very serious for the company because it just cut into the margins, and we realized that we've of course we tried raising the price. I would say most items just didn't stick with the consumers, so it was just really decreasing gross margins, and that didn't allow us to really cover the cost that we were able to before, and it was becoming bad. And so early 2014, I had to let go of my 
only full-time staff. And I kind of really stepped into that role. So I was the only full-time person uh, just doing the, the marketing, the, the buying, the fulfillment. Employees know when things are going wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's, for me anyway, that was harder to deal with than the financial mm. aspects of it. Mm. So what, what was the, the team like at this point? Were they still putting in the hours? What, what um, was going on? Uh, the part-timers, they mostly worked from home, so they didn't, really, they didn't really know about the situation. So at this point, I mean, you're still keeping on and you're still yeah. focused. Yes. Your family and friends who were supportive early on, did they know what was going on or was it pretty much you kept it to yourself? Uh, the part-timers didn't know. My, a lot of my friends I didn't tell. I mean, my, my parents sort of knew. Uh, my girlfriend knew. But, of course, the investors knew. But it was pretty much limited to that. I mean, okay. I, I didn't try to you know, put on... I was always serious, but I didn't try to, you know... So you, you were trying to keep a, a public persona that everything is fine and yeah. business as usual. And I, and I, you know, up until the very last minute, I believed that it was going to succeed. Yeah. So, so I, I kept on. What happened at this point? I mean, you're, you're doing, you're filling the role of two startup employees, <laughs> which is like four normal employees. Right. Um, that had to be taking its toll on you. The one thing that was good for me was that... Um, in terms of cost, like office space, I was able to use my investor's office space. And, and you know, I wasn't charged for that. Okay. Um, also, what happened was I kind of doubled that office space as my, as my apartment, really. Oh, no. So, so you're sleeping at the office. Yeah, I mean, I, was, you know, I would wake up early and, and work until you know, very late trying to get everything done. Um, so it, it was tough. Um, so revenues at this point are, are shrinking? Or still uh, going up? Just very flat. Flat. Very flat, but the gross margins are getting worse. Okay. So at this point, uh, 2014, I, I scraped together whatever, whatever money I, I could get. Uh, uh, some of the money I actually liquidated, some of my, um, you know, I, wor- I had worked in the United States, so I had a, a 401k savings, and I had to cash out on that to, to fund the business. So you were, you were really putting everything you had into yes, this? Yes. In every sense of the word? Yes. Wow. I guess at this point, you're sleeping in the office. You, you've put everything you have financially into the company again. Mm. Uh, you're probably destroying your health at this point. <laughs> <laughs> From eating unhealthy uh, breads and yeah. uh, noodles. And, and you're playing a game of mostly cost control at this point, I would yeah. guess, right? Yes. For me, looking at this from the outside, it's easy to say, okay, this is an unsustainable situation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you didn't think so or you wouldn't have kept going. Mm. So what, what was that trigger that, that made you say, okay, I'm, I'm done with this? Uh, the, the time I really knew that the business can't go forward was is basically the money just ran out. It wasn't, it, it wasn't you know, a self-sustaining business. I mean, I needed more cash to just even keep the, the sales going flat. You know, I wasn't paying myself, so that kind of personal debt also piles on. Yeah. And it was just kind of spiraling out of control. And that's just when I knew, I mean, at this point, unless I got funding, and I don't mean a little money, you know, big money, yeah. it just wasn't going to go on. So it wasn't so much a rational decision as, as reality just kind of hitting you in the face and saying, you're done, you're out of money. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it was just basically that. 
it was just uh, almost filing for personal bankruptcy or, you know, yeah. it was just that, that kind of a moment. Personality-wise, I'm not the one to quit on, on anything. So I, I just found it once I got going, I just found it hard to stop. And you were just focused on that goal. Yeah. And, and at this point, I mean, there was, I remember there was a time when, when you know, my, my father said, maybe, you know, this is time to stop. But it's, it's just like not something I was willing to accept, you know. Wow. I, I just felt like I, I had to go on. Basically, maybe I couldn't take the fact that everything, all the cost that, or, or all the money that I put in would be a sunk cost. But uh, maybe I just couldn't face up to that. So, so maybe you there was... You, you, just, you think maybe you just didn't want to admit it to yourself? Or? I, I'm, at that point, maybe there was a little bit of that. Maybe I was a bit de- delusional uh, and, and maybe not wanting to uh, accept the f- fact that it would go under because, you know, what, what else would I do really? I mean, I've been at it for so long, and, you know, how would I go about folding a company? At this point, what did you, what did you think shutting down the company was going to be like? I mean, you had to have an image of your head, in your head of what you thought it was going to be like. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the, the thing that I imagine the most is, you know, what kind of conversation would I have with the people who have supported me all this time, uh, which is... You know, not just family members or my girlfriend or, or, or friends, but really also all the stakeholders, which is the investors as well, and also the, all the, the part-timers. Um, at the end of the day, it's, it's my responsibility. So uh, I just found trying to have that conversation very tough to imagine. You were feeling like uh, you'd be letting a lot of people down? Exactly. I think that, that was what worried me the most. Yeah. What... What was it really like that that day or that week when you finally had to to pull the plug and and shut it down for real? I, I remember um, you know, talking to my family. It wasn't so tough because maybe you know they thought maybe I should you know walk away from it. But but talking, I remember talking to my investor, and, and that was a very tough day um, because you know when you have an equity investor, you know if the company goes under, you just you know he just loses whatever stake he had in that company. And, yeah. and, and I know it's my responsibility, and, and that was... Shutting it down was mostly meeting with the stakeholders at yeah. that point, talking to the part-timers? Yeah, and, and letting know, you know what was going to happen you know, going forward and how that process would be, uh, talking over. Well, how did, it, how did it go over? I mean, you were, you were worried about talking to the stakeholders and... And your family kind of has to accept you no matter what. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but how do these conversations go? I mean... I'm not very good, uh, as, as one would imagine. Following that con- initial conversation, we had some difficult conversations about, you know, how we would exit and, and how I would um, get rid of some of the, the remaining inventory and so on and so forth. Investors, and I know investors come in all shapes, sizes, and levels of experience. Mm. But startup investors are supposed to be grown up enough to know that they're probably going to lose any particular investment Mm. they make. Mm. So was the stress that your investors actually felt disappointed that you didn't generate a return? I felt uh, my investor was 
very understanding. Okay. Um, and I knew, and I knew, you know, it wouldn't be a terrible conversation because I mean, I had worked with with him for for a few years in the same office. But it's just that the feeling that I knew that you know I would be letting him down and was was kind of a burden on me. Okay, so it wasn't that that your investors or stakeholders were acting unusual. It was more uh, still your feeling of letting yeah, I people think down. That was bigger. I mean, of course, you know, with the investors, we had uh, some difficult conversations, but it was within what I had expected. It wasn't anything crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about from your your wider circle of friends and things? Because I, I mean, I understand. Like, they they didn't really give me feedback, and I just really told them I was no longer working on it. I had shut the the site down, and and you know maybe they felt like, oh, I told you so, or I knew it wouldn't work out, but. <laughs> I didn't really get any feedback, you know. They kind of kept it to themselves. Yeah, right? I mean, because I think they knew that it, you know it, it was difficult for me, so I think they just didn't really comment on it. Huh? What well, sounds like even in Japan, mm. where failure still does have this this stigma. Mm. I mean, from what I'm hearing, anyway, it sounds like you were harder on yourself than anybody else was. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds to me like your investors and your friends and your family were more than willing to to accept this failure and have you move on and be supportive but but you were the one beating up yourself yeah because i think this this is just how how i was maybe trained or, or brought up because uh, you know startups fail every day yeah. probably all over the world but but i think my belief is that you know as as the owner or as as the main person you have to make sure that you put in everything you have to, into it, or else it's just not going to succeed. Yeah. So really, I wanted to do my part to make sure that I overcome these obstacles if I can. And then maybe the company would go well. But I felt that if I didn't put in that effort, of course it's not going to go well. Right. So what's next? Uh, what, I'm, what I decided to do after Sherba Kids was, you know, reality really set in after that. You know, I just needed to find a job. I mean, it's, you know, in terms of like personal standpoint, I needed to just earn money, even if it's month to month. Now, this is a really important point in Japan right now. So during the job interview process, and particularly if you're dealing with established companies, yeah. did you feel there was any kind of a stigma? I, I did. I did. did I mean, it, was, it was so interesting, this whole process, because um, there was a lot of, you know, I started looking for opportunities uh, you know, at that time, and I would, I would think even now, there's a lot of opportunities in e-commerce. I mean, it's in Japan, yeah. there's so many jobs. And, you know, I'm grateful for the experience that I've had and, and some of my um, educational background that I was able to get a lot of interviews with a lot of companies. Um, but what, what happened during the interview is a different story. You know, I would tell them about my experience, my experience uh, in, in e-commerce and... Basically, I have I have not had an experience where I took a company and made it into a gazillion dollar company, right? And this is what everybody was expecting. I mean, they didn't, you know. I think in America, they see failure in a startup as, as something that would be beneficial to a company, your next company. Sure, it's not as good as success, but but it's a, it's real experience. It's real experience, and, and you learn what not to do, maybe and. But a lot of the people I spoke to when I was interviewing here in Japan, most people didn't see it that way. It was like, well, if you have not succeeded, 
then what can you do here? And, and that was kind of the problem that I had. So were these companies, um, you don't have to name names, but were they large traditional companies? Were they newer startups? What types of firms were you interviewing with? I was interviewing with large multinational companies. I mean, some were domestic companies, but fairly well known. And, and some U.S. companies, like Fortune 500 companies, that were looking to uh, put a lot of effort into their e-commerce. Okay. But it was just really odd that, that um, I would go into a lot of these interviews, and I had gotten many, but it, it just didn't have that, that good result. It wasn't the lack of e-commerce knowledge. It was the fact that you'd failed. They brought this up yeah. in the interviews. and Really? Yeah. And, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, it, I'm it, sorry to hear. I mean, it just, that's one of the things that needs to change here in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> and it was interesting because you know, some of the, the multinational companies, you would think they're much more willing to accept those kind of people. But in reality, if you talk to maybe some of the, the hiring officers or the, 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 um, uh, the HR people... Because they're all Japanese. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's the kind of mentality they have as well. I mean, it's, it's like if you have failed, what else, what, what can you do for us? And that's the kind of hurdle I couldn't overcome. So I, I, and essentially, I, f- I felt that I almost had to not lie, but just kind of uh, embellish a lot of things. All right. But... That still didn't really work too much. So you think that they, they, they would prefer a less skilled, less knowledgeable person who's had less responsibility and therefore hasn't failed? Yeah. Maybe somebody who took less risk, but maybe somebody who had a lot of potential to succeed. Uh, I think those were maybe the kind of people they were looking for. Uh. <laughs> I, I was really hoping you weren't going to say that. Oh, really? No, no. I mean, it's, it's the truth. That's what I want. I mean, just meant for like the future of Japan. Oh, okay. I was hoping that that wasn't still the case. Oh, okay. Everyone in Japan these days is saying that they're more accepting of failure yeah. and that it's embracing. But, but having lived through it, it sounds like that's not really the case yet. Yes. But I wouldn't say that, that all is lost because... You know, I actually found an opportunity with a, a Japanese company who sell uh, British luxury uh, uh, goods. Okay. Um, you know, I met with the, the CEO of that company, and, and that person really found my experience interesting. And I remember during the interview, he asked me, you know, if you had to do it all over again, would you do it? And I think that was the key question. And I said, yes, you know, absolutely, I would do it again. Consequently, he hired me, and I'm managing the e-commerce for that company. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so I'm extremely grateful to that person. Was he the founder of that company? He was the founder of that company. See, this is what I've found. Everyone says that entrepreneurs can't work for other people. I don't believe this. Entrepreneurs can work for other entrepreneurs. (laughs) That usually works out really well. I think so. And maybe, you know, that's, you know, probably true for a lot of people who do startups and end up like me. Maybe temporarily they need to go back into a, a corporate job. But, but I think if you spend the time, you can find opportunities. It's just that, you know, there's just at this point in Japan, not many. You have to work for You have to really work for it and find them. Well, the CEO already asked you the question I was going to, whether you would okay. do it again. Yes. Let me ask you if you... If you could go back in time mm. and do it again, mm. what would you do differently this time? Uh, yeah, I, think, uh, I think before spending the money, before pivoting, I would have made sure that the business model, because initially we started to do a flash sales, yeah. and I would have made sure that would have really, that I would have been able to follow through with the business with that model, because we pivoted way too early. 
So, so do you mean you should have stuck with it longer or you should have uh, tested it on a smaller scale? What, what would you have done? I would have, I would have gone to all the, the manufacturers and made sure what they wanted to do the flash sales. And I would have adjusted my spending or talking with the VCs accordingly. Because you know, I started out with the company and we made a small pivot and we tried to do like, oh, maybe we spend a little money, we'll see how it goes. And it was kind of an incremental like, increase in sales of the business. Instead of doing that, if I, had known, if I had known I would have done the business model, I would have made sure that I had thought of that business model well before starting and made all the projections and would have approached the VCs with a lot more funding. You know, spending, getting funding is great, but spending that money little by little doesn't always... You know. so, so you would have um, done fewer tiny experiments and spent more time on like customer validation and... Exactly. Yeah. Up front. And then I would have made my uh, projections much higher. And then I would have been able to approach the VCs with those kind of projections as opposed to doing this kind of slow, you know, kind of incremental rise in sales. Where all the VCs want to see that, that exponential growth. Yeah. So in a sense, it's like... I would have spent my money much faster, All right. really. But hopefully gotten more of it. Yeah, exactly. When we made that pivot, you're a little scared that maybe that business model isn't going to pan out. So that's why you spend in little bits and pieces of it. But that, doesn't work. that didn't work out for me. And I see for a lot of you know, my fellow entrepreneurs that you know, a lot of people who have succeeded and gotten funding, they spend that money very quickly. Yeah. 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 And I think that was one of the mistakes that I made. So I would do that differently. So... Get certain on your strategy first and then, yeah. and then just put the money it. behind it. Yeah, and just do it. And then, you know, early on, then you would know if you had a good business model or not. Whereas I kind of, you know, tinkered around with it for two, three years. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about the difficulties. We've mm-hmm. talked a lot about the hard times you went through in this. But looking back on it now, what do you look back on most fondly? Most fondly? Yeah. I don't know if I would say, looking back on it fondly, the, the, the number one thing that I got most out of it was it kind of built me up as a person. You, know, you, you face so much in a startup. I mean, so many things don't go well. Oh, yeah. But you just need to have that focus. You need to have that kind of, that kind of resolve. 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 And that's what I gained most out of it. Because, you know, when I used to work for a company, you know, you, you freak out at, at the smallest things. Like, oh, this thing go, this thing go well. But now it's like those things don't bother me. Because the things that I worried about with this startup was like, oh, my God, what if I can't pay my employees? I mean, you know, payday is coming up and I don't, I don't have the cash. It, it does give you a sense of priorities, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. It gives you a real sense of perspective. Yeah, and, and after experiencing that, you know, a lot of the, the things that I used to fuss about aren't such, such a big deal anymore. And so it's given me so much of that resolve, like as a person. And so I'm, I look, I don't know, fondly, but appreciative. On that. Yes. On Excellent. That. You think you'll do it again? Oh, I, definitely. I think I would at some point. I don't know if I would just cleanly quit my company and, and work on a new startup. But it sounds like you need a little time to decompress. Exactly. And get my finances in, in order <laughs> as well. A salary can be really helpful there. Yes. But I have these thoughts because maybe, you know, deep down, maybe I am an entrepreneur. Like, I want to really thank you for coming and sharing your story. But before we wrap up, 
What advice do you have for all the young Japanese who want to start companies? My number one advice is, is you know, I think there's only so much that you can think through thing, through your, the, the, the business model that you're thinking about, your own startup. But once you've done that to a certain extent, just go into it. Because there's so many things that come up that you can't predict and you have to solve on your own. So just go into it. Because if you don't go into it, you know, it's, it's never going to start. Because I know so many people who say, oh, I want to do my own business. I want to start this. I want to start that. But for most people, it just never happens. Because I think a lot of it is, is just that courage part. And, and I'm, I know this very well because, but by doing this startup, you know, I just kind of put myself there and I just exposed myself. Yeah. And a lot of crappy things happened to me, but I'm still here and I survived. And, and at the end of the day, hey, you know, I'm not dead, you know, my, my, <laughs> my family is still intact, you know, my loved ones are still there for me. And that's all you can really expect in life. Excellent. Well, listen, man, thanks so much for coming. I mean, everyone... Everyone talks about failure in the abstract or loves talking about other people's failures, but I think it takes real guts to talk about your own. So thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking about my experience. Thanks for coming in. It's been a great time. Thank you. And we're back. I've got to say, I was disappointed at how hard it was for Hiro to find a new job after his company went bankrupt. That's one of the most important things we need to get fixed in Japan before startups will really begin to flourish. Now, startup culture teaches us to treat failure so lightly that it almost trivializes it, but I disagree. Now, some of my friends in San Francisco feel I put too much concern on failure, and perhaps they're right, but I don't think so. You can't put your heart, your time, your life, your relationships into something and then just shrug it off if it blows up around you. You get over it. You learn from it. You move on. Someday you might actually laugh at it. But I think if failure doesn't hurt, your heart wasn't in it. You weren't really trying. Being an entrepreneur is not so much about not being afraid of failure, but being afraid and doing it anyway. Now, for the important updates. First, and most important, Hero is doing great. He had a hard time landing his first job after his failure at Cherubu Kids, but once he got it, he excelled. And he's now the head of e-commerce at a major international fashion brand. Japan as a whole, however, has not made quite so much progress. But credit where credit is due. I called up and tracked down my friends and acquaintances who had started companies that went out of business to check on them and see how they were doing. Everyone seems to have landed on their feet and picked up the pieces within about four months. That's good news. However, two important trends emerge from this highly unscientific survey of mine. First, just like Hero, a lot of these founders were hired by other startup founders. That's good. That's a natural fit. Founders are often a better cultural fit at startups than they are at larger organizations. And better still, there are a lot more startups in Japan today than when Hiro and I first talked about this in 2015. Any founder who fails honestly today, they've got a lot of options. 
Second, the more technology-driven large companies have really started to change on this point. There is more and more mobility of the staff in their 20s and early 30s between startups and some of the newer large Japanese corporations like Rakuten and Merkari and DNA and that group. Now, these new companies make up a small percentage of Japan's GDP. But they are the companies that are growing fast and hiring aggressively. So for a job seeker, they're the important ones. Japanese society as a whole, however, I gotta say, it, it still has a long way to go. Not, not to embracing failure or any nonsense like that, but to understanding that failure as an entrepreneur is not the same thing as failure of a university entrance exam. When you start a startup, nobody knows what the right answers are. Hell, usually you don't even know what the right questions are. A startup failure is more like a defeat in baseball. It hurts. You'll probably learn something from it. But you are still unquestionably better than all of the critics sitting in the stands. If you've got an honest failure story you want to share, we'd love to hear from you. So come by DisruptingJapan.com and let's talk about it. If you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. But even better, if you like the show, tell one friend about it. Just one. Disrupting Japan has grown not by social media marketing or advertising, but because so many of our listeners have told one friend that they enjoyed the show. But most of all, Thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.